If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. If you're a Shark Tank fan or business junkie, check out the podcast, Another Bite. Each week, Another Bite breaks down the biggest success stories and most disastrous failures to come out of Shark Tank. The hosts break down each company's pitch, analyze the deals that were or weren't made, and answer the million-dollar question, are they still a company? Whether you're an entrepreneur looking for tips or a Shark Tank fan that just wants to relive the drama, Another Bite's your deep dive into the world of Shark Tank. Just search for Another Bite in your favorite podcast app, like the one you're listening to right now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We all want to believe that we are good judges of character, that if someone close to us was a bad person, we would know. But how well do you know your neighbors? The man they are calling a serial killer. Double homicide. Guilty of manslaughter. How much can you trust those around you? The police are told they will kill their children and the husband. If he ever found out, she would disappear. I heard a woman screaming and then a pop-pop. Monsters don't live under the bed. They walk among us. From the award-winning team behind the UK true crime podcast, They Walk Among Us, They Walk Among America provides a unique and in-depth account of some of the most puzzling and polarizing cases from the United States. They Walk Among America is a storytelling-style podcast that delves deeper into the cases that have horrified and captivated the public. Hosted by Nina Instead and produced in association with the Law & Crime Podcast Network, Visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts or theywalkamonguspodcast.com. If there's anything to be gained, it's first all go forward. Help a neighbor, love your family. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. They Walk Among Us is part of the Acast Creator Network. Throughout the first two decades of the 20th century, 
life in Britain began to change rapidly. In the years preceding the First World War and the Great Depression, the economy was stable. Although the divide between classes was significant, women were getting closer to equality, and the first female police officers began to patrol the streets. It had been many years since Jack the Ripper had terrified women in London, but a new predator was in their midst, someone who could lull his victims into such a false sense of security they had no idea he would strike when they were at their most vulnerable. Welcome to Season 7, Episode 28 of They Walk Among Us a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Exactly a week before Christmas in 1914, the landlady Louisa Blatch was alerted by the sound of her upstairs tenant calling for help. The cries came from outside the bathroom, in a property on what was then Bismarck Road in Highgate, London. Louisa was unfamiliar with her new lodgers. The couple had only moved in the previous evening, after getting married earlier that day in Bath. John Lloyd had gone out to the shop to pick up some tomatoes for supper the following night. Louisa Blatch had heard him playing the organ in the sitting room before he left. She let him back into the house when he returned, sometime around 7.30pm. As he came in, John called for his new wife Margaret, but received no reply, so he went through the house looking for her. It was from the bathroom John shouted down to his landlady, My God, she is in the bath. Come and help me. Margaret had been complaining of pain on her wedding day, so her new husband took her to a doctor in London who concluded Margaret was suffering from a form of influenza. The following evening, she must have decided to take a soak in the bath and it was there where Margaret was found in the dark face up beneath the water. Her death was curious, just an unfortunate tragedy. A sick woman passed away in the bath. Perhaps she lost consciousness and drowned in the tub. But Margaret Lofty was 38 years old and previously healthy. It was hard to fathom what caused her death. She was from a loving family, but Margaret had to work hard to help her mother following her father's death. Margaret did not neglect her duties as a daughter. Her sole focus at that point was bringing money into the household. So she was overjoyed when she began a romantic relationship with a man who worked on the railways. In December 1913, the pair were engaged, and Margaret looked forward to settling down. Her fiancé seemed every bit the respectable man he appeared to be, although he was away from home frequently, 
Sadly, things were too good to be true. Margaret discovered her betrothed was already married to someone else. When Britain declared war in the summer of 1914, Margaret felt like she would never find a good man. Hundreds of thousands had enlisted in the army. The likelihood of discovering her soulmate seemed like a search without end. Margaret worked as a nurse for a short time, but during this period did not find a suitor on any of the wards. Dejected, she returned to Bristol to live with her mother and sister once more, and it was then Margaret began a secret relationship with John Lloyd. In the lead-up to their marriage at the registry office on December 17, 1914, Margaret took out a life insurance policy that would pay out £700 upon her death. This is the equivalent of just under £100,000 in today's money. Two days before their wedding day, Margaret sent letters to her mother and sister, telling them she would be away for a few days to help a friend, but she was in fact staying with her fiancé in rented accommodation. In the presence of two witnesses, Margaret Lofty would marry John Lloyd, a 38-year-old real estate agent. The couple took a train straight to London to begin a new chapter in their lives. They found a second-floor room for seven shillings a week in a property owned by Louisa Blatch. It was there that Margaret wrote another letter to her family, confessing that she had got married. She apologised for not telling them, but reassured her loved ones by letting them know how happy she was. On her first day as a married woman, Margaret had been to a solicitor's office, written up a will and left everything to her new husband. It was surprising then that no more than a few hours later, she would be found dead in the bath on the first floor. When she was discovered, the candle to light the room had burned out and the bath water was cold. The doctor, who the previous day concluded Margaret was battling some nasty flu-like virus, was summoned to the scene. Dr. Bates found Margaret being attended to by her husband and a police constable on the bathroom floor. A dressing gown had been placed over her body to preserve her dignity, but her skin was cold to the touch, and it was determined that nothing could have been done to save her. A post-mortem by Dr. Bates highlighted that aside from a small bruise on Margaret's left elbow, there were no external injuries. Her lungs and stomach contained froth and water. Dr. Bates concluded that Margaret may have fainted from influenza and drowned in the bath. The inquest was delayed as the landlady could not attend. However, it was decided that Margaret's funeral would still go ahead as planned on December 23rd. Margaret Lofty was buried in Islington Cemetery. Her husband insisted he could only afford a minimal funeral. 
The coroner's inquiry on January 1st, 1915 returned a verdict of accidental death. Within days, a man named Charles Burnham came across a newspaper article on Margaret Lofty's death in the News of the World. He was shocked by the similarities between Margaret's untimely demise and his own daughter's death just a year earlier. 25-year-old nurse Alice Burnham, who grew up in Buckinghamshire, had worked hard to save a sum of £100 that she had entrusted to her father for safekeeping. It was while employed in the Portsmouth area of Southsea that she had met a man named George Smith. They quickly fell in love. Despite her father's protestations, the couple were married in a South Sea registry office on November 4th, 1913. Smith was 15 years older than Alice, and Charles Burnham disapproved of the age gap. Coincidentally, a day earlier, Alice Burnham had taken out a life insurance policy that would pay out £1,000 in the event of her death. The newlyweds then asked Alice's father to send them the £100 he had been looking after, but Charles Burnham did not trust his new son-in-law. Weeks of back and forth followed between Mr Burnham and his daughter's new husband, and the letters were marked with contempt, and even a threat from Smith that read, I do not know your next move, but take my advice and be very careful. The money was eventually sent, and because she was now married, Alice's life insurance payout was reduced by around 50%. In early December, the couple made wills that left everything to each other in the case of their deaths. Within a week, they went on a trip to Blackpool and rented a room on Regent Road from a Mr Crosley. The only stipulation to finding suitable accommodation was that the couple requested the room have a bath. On their first day in Blackpool, they ended up visiting a local doctor. Smith said that his wife had a headache and she was given a prescription for medication to help alleviate her symptoms. On December 12th, three days into their honeymoon, Alice took a bath while the family that owned the property sat in the kitchen. It was directly below the bathroom. They noticed water dripping from the ceiling and presumed that Alice had overfilled the tub, but they did not want to upset their guests, so did not mention it. George Smith came in a few moments later. He discussed what they wanted for breakfast the following morning before turning on his heels and going back upstairs to his lodgings. Within minutes, the family heard Smith calling for a doctor, the same doctor he had visited two days prior. Dr Billing arrived at the property and found Smith supporting his wife's lifeless body as she sat in the filled bath with her head at the narrow end of the tub. The doctor asked Smith why he had not emptied the water, 
and Smith simply answered that he had not thought of it. After they lifted Alice from the three-foot, nine-inch bath and put her on the floor, Dr. Billing tried in vain to resuscitate her, but was unsuccessful. The doctor determined that she had drowned after possibly having a seizure as a result of some type of previously undiagnosed heart condition. A coroner's jury would return a verdict of accidental death before Alice's family were even informed that she had died. George Smith had requested a cheap funeral at the earliest opportunity. Alice's heartbroken mother and brother had made the journey to Blackpool just in time to witness the sorry affair, devoid of any personal touches or flowers. Smith quickly made an excuse to leave. He received £600 from Alice's life insurance. The Burnhams never heard from their new son-in-law again, but the article on Margaret Lofty's drowning in a bathtub prompted Charles Burnham and the owner of the guesthouse where Alice had died, Joseph Crossley, to ask the police to investigate whether George Smith and John Lloyd were one and the same. A letter penned by Charles Burnham and Joseph Crossley was attached to newspaper articles about Margaret and Alice's deaths and forwarded to the police. Unsure of what to do with the suspicious similarities between the cases that had been ruled accidents in the coroner's court, the assistance of Scotland Yard was sought. Detective Inspector Arthur Neal was assigned to look into the matter. The officer visited the house in Highgate where Margaret Lofty had died and noted that the bath was relatively small for a woman to have accidentally drowned in. Inspector Neal also spoke with Dr Bates who had been at the scene. The officer learned that Margaret's widower had submitted an insurance claim. Furthermore, Dr. Bates had been asked to corroborate that Margaret had accidentally drowned in the bath. Inspector Neal surmised that the best chance they had of catching the supposedly grieving widower was to wait for him to try and collect the insurance money from the office of his solicitor. Alice's father and landlord Joseph Crossley had provided a description of George Smith which seemed to match the description of John Lloyd. Before the authorities could arrest the man in question, they had to be sure. So they compared the handwriting from the marriage certificate signed by both of the victim's husbands. It was a match. On February 1st, 1915, the suspect was approached by the police as he left his solicitor's office and asked if he was George Smith. He denied he was, but Alice Burnham's father was on his way. Well aware an identification would be made, the suspect admitted who he was. Smith was arrested and charged with forging the marital register. He told the arresting officers that it was the, quote, 
irony of fate that my two wives should have died in the same way. I suppose this has come about through the insurance, but I did not know she was insured until after she was dead or that she made a will. I suppose this trouble would have come when my first wife died if she had been insured. George Joseph Smith was born in Bethnal Green in 1872. He spent his early years in a reformatory and had adult convictions for theft. Smith's first wife was Caroline Thornhill, an 18-year-old he married in 1898 when Smith went by the name George Love. Smith was persuasive. He was able to convince his wife to commit theft upon his request. After she was caught pawning items he had instructed her to steal from her employer, Caroline was sentenced to a year in prison. Upon her release, Caroline eventually managed to prove to the police that in fact the mastermind behind the thefts was her husband. George Smith was arrested and sentenced to two years in prison. Caroline fled the country, and after his release, Smith quickly moved on. Over the next few years, he married at least five more women, many of whom he left within a short time after clearing out their bank accounts. While George Smith was remanded into custody and awaited a trial for forgery, the investigation into the deaths of his wives continued. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, head eyebrow and eyelid drooping and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia 
Leukemia Gravis or Lambert-Eden Syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Three days after George Smith's arrest, Sir Bernard Spilsbury, a notable pathologist, was tasked with exhuming the victim's remains and conducting post-mortem examinations. Margaret Lofty's body was exhumed on February 4th. Like Dr. Bates, Spilsbury noted bruising on the back of Margaret's left arm, but otherwise there were no obvious signs of violence. Five days later, Alice Burnham's remains were exhumed in Blackpool. Smith's decision to have her buried in a pauper's grave meant that the coffin had cracked and the lower half was filled with water, making an examination difficult. Without any external injuries to support the belief that Alice and Margaret had not drowned accidentally, the baths they died in were analysed. Although Alice was considered short at around five feet, the bath was small enough that she would have had trouble moving in it. It would have been especially difficult for her to fall unconscious and slip under the water. When Dr. Billing had arrived, he saw Smith holding Alice at the narrowest end of the bath, but a volume of dark hair had been seen at the opposite end of the tub where she would have naturally positioned herself. There was also a lot of water on the floor of the bathroom, something that seemed odd if she had simply slid down into the bathwater. When newspapers began to report on the bizarre case under the headline Brides in the Bath, the circumstances of Alice Burnham and Margaret Lofty's deaths were also noticed by superintendent of the Kent Constabulary. He informed Detective Inspector Neil from Scotland Yard, about a case where a woman had been found dead in the bath in Hearn Bay in July 1912. There were too many similarities for it to be a coincidence. Thirty-three-year-old Beatrice Constance Mundy, who went by Bessie, had met and married a man named Henry Williams in 1910. Bessie had not lived alone for very long. Raised by a single father who worked as a bank manager, she had been described as being easily led. Bessie lived with her brother and uncle after her father's death, inheriting the sum of £2,500 in her father's will. The money was put into a trust, and Bessie was to receive £8 a month enough to live on at the time. Bessie had moved to Bristol, 
and it was here that she met a tall, well-dressed man who introduced himself as Henry. It would later be discovered that this was just another of George Smith's aliases. Smith and Bessie eloped to Weymouth with few possessions and were married in August 1910. Smith got to work immediately, trying to access his new wife's fortune, writing to her uncle and brother. Dear Sir, I think it my duty to inform you of my marriage with Bessie Constance Mundy at the office of the Registrar. Believe me, yours faithfully, Henry Williams. Unsatisfied with the amount Bessie was given per month, as the £2,500 was locked away in a trust, Smith instead cleared out £150 from her bank account. He manufactured an excuse to abandon Bessie, accusing his wife of giving him a venereal disease. As quickly as he came into Bessie's life, Smith left, and in his wake, Bessie was penniless and humiliated. Mortified, she returned to Bristol. Sometime later, when Bessie travelled to Western Supermare in March 1912, surprisingly she ran into her estranged husband. Smith told her he had been wrong to make accusations and wanted to make it up to her. He was incredibly convincing. Much like the letters Smith would send to his subsequent wives' families in the days and weeks before their deaths, Bessie's loved ones received similar letters supposedly written by her, urging her family to forgive Smith, with whom she was about to begin her life in Hearn Bay. The couple would go on to rent a house on the high street, and Bessie lovingly began to furnish it with the best pieces she could find. A month after they moved to Hearn Bay, the couple went to a solicitor and had mutual wills written up. In early July, Smith and his new wife bought a bath for their rented home, one that had to be filled and emptied by hand because it was not attached to the property's plumbing. Just as he would do with his other doomed brides, George Smith brought Bessie to a local physician, Dr. French, reporting that she was ill. Smith said his wife had suffered a seizure. Bessie had no history of epilepsy or fits, but the doctor was convinced by Smith's story. He even cemented the notion two days later when Smith summoned the doctor to Bessie's bedside after she allegedly had another seizure. She complained of a headache, which the doctor thought was likely a side effect of the seizure, and prescribed more medication. The next day, Bessie Mundy was found dead in the bath. A bar of soap was gripped tightly in her right hand. On the morning of the funeral, four days later, George Smith feigned distress when he spoke to the letting agent who had rented them the house on Hearn Bay High Street, but promptly told her, wasn't it a jolly good job I got her to make out her will? 
Bessie Mundy's death was ruled an accidental drowning following an epileptic fit, but almost three years later, the case was reinvestigated and Sir Bernard Spilsbury was sent to exhume her remains. George Smith was charged with three counts of murder on March 23, 1915. His trial began three months later at the Old Bailey, but due to complications in the legal system, he was only facing a murder charge relating to Bessie Mundy's death. However, surprisingly, the prosecution were allowed to tell the jury about the other alleged murders. Jurors were instructed that they could not conclude that Smith had killed Bessie just because he may have killed two other women, but they could draw an inference on whether Bessie's death was accidental or designed by Smith, who'd murdered the women he had married in order to obtain their fortune. During a seven-hour opening statement, Prosecutor Archibald Botkin told the court that Smith was a serial bigamist, who had a habit of getting insurance for his new brides just before they drowned in a bath. In each case, Smith had brought his wife to the doctors prior to her death to allude to an underlying condition that could have caused them to lose consciousness. Hundreds of people flocked to the Old Bailey to witness what was reported as being, quote, the most remarkable trial that has been held in this country since Dr. Crippen appeared in the dock. The prosecutor detailed how George Smith's relationship with Bessie Mundy began in secret and how he exerted so much control over her that she left her loved ones behind and moved to an unfamiliar location where she knew no one. When Smith could not access the £2,500 that had been put into a trust for Bessie, he accused her of being unfaithful and giving him a sexually transmitted disease before leaving and returning to one of his wives, Edith Peglar. Edith was used to her husband coming and going. She believed he was an antique dealer and would often travel for months at a time before returning home unannounced with money he claimed he obtained from his sales. In reality, the funds were taken from one of his seven other wives, either by clearing out their bank accounts or through their wills after they had drowned in a bath. George Smith even sought legal advice from a solicitor in order to figure out how he could inherit Bessie Mundy's money despite it being in a trust. He was told the couple could write mutual wills, leaving everything to one another. If Bessie died before her trustees could buy an annuity, then Smith would be able to claim the £2,500, which would amount to over £150,000 today. So it was at this point that Smith then sought out Bessie and convinced her he was sorry for ever leaving. The couple moved to Hearn Bay and rented a house. The property did not have a bath or the plumbing to install one, 
but Smith made sure to buy a freestanding tub and have it placed in their bedroom before July 13, 1912. It would have taken 20 buckets of water, carried upstairs from the ground floor to fill the bath. Bessie was found by Dr. French, who had been summoned to the house by George Smith. Her head was still partially submerged under the water. Despite a lengthy attempt at resuscitation, Bessie was pronounced dead and no post-mortem was ordered. A coroner's jury returned a verdict of death by misadventure and her drowning was deemed a terrible accident. After the doctor left, Smith asked a woman to come to the house to prepare Bessie for her funeral. He led the woman upstairs to the bedroom and told her that Bessie was inside. The woman testified, I went in and could only see a bath. She was lying behind the door dead. It was a dreadful shock to me. Smith showed the same disregard for his dead wife when he insisted on the cheapest casket and the cheapest funeral service possible. He also returned the bath for a full refund. George Smith interrupted the legal proceedings on numerous occasions. When one witness testified that Smith had inquired about renting a room with one of his other wives, he voiced his disinterest because it did not have a bath. Smith interrupted this testimony, shouting that the witness was lying. He was ordered to be quiet. In response, the defendant said, I am on a charge for my life, and it is my business to protect it. This has been made up by detectives. I never said a word about the bath. Smith accused the witness of being paid by the prosecution. In Margaret Lofty's case, George Smith had returned to one of his wives, Edith Pelgar, by Christmas 1914 and warned her of the dangers of having a bath. He said that he knew several women who had weak hearts and died after fainting, slowly slipping under the water. However, Smith neglected to tell Edith that he had been married to them. There was no physical evidence to present in the case, but after exhuming their bodies... Sir Bernard Spilsbury concluded that each victim drowned. Together with detectives, experiments were conducted to deduce how a woman could be drowned in a bathtub with no sign of a struggle or injury. It was believed that inhibition played a vital role. The women would lose consciousness so quickly that they were unable to struggle or keep themselves upright. Investigators got a woman of a similar size to the victims and placed her in a bath the same size as the ones the victims had died in. They gripped her ankles and lifted her legs so suddenly that she slipped beneath the water and did not fight at all. The experiment had been so successful that the woman lost consciousness. 
and took half an hour of artificial respiration and restorative treatment to rouse her. She said the water had rushed into her mouth and nostrils so quickly that she blacked out. The prosecution theorised that Smith would have come into the bathroom where his obedient wife was bathing, and without warning, he lifted her legs. Archibald Bodkin said, The immediate effect would be that the trunk of the body would go down the sloping part, and there would be almost immediate unconsciousness, and rapid and silent death the inevitable result. The fact that Bessie Mundy had been gripping a bar of soap when she died was used to bolster the contention that she had died suddenly and had no chance to drop it. Throughout the nine-day trial, George Smith continued his erratic outbursts, alleging that the prosecutor Archibald Bodkin manufactured criminals. Smith denied that he had murdered anyone. He spoke at length from his seat, but declined the chance to testify in his own defence. After all the evidence had been heard, Mr Justice Scrutton began his summation to the jury. Highlighting the lives lost during the war while the legal proceedings were underway at home, the judge told them, It is one of the ironies of life that since last August, all over Europe, sometimes in Asia, sometimes on the seas, thousands of lives of combatants and sometimes non-combatants have been taken daily, with no warning and in many cases with no justification. Yet while this wholesale destruction of human life is going on for nine days... All the apparatus of justice in England has been considering whether the prosecution are right in saying that one man should die. And it is quite right that it should be. The prisoner at the bar, if he is innocent or until he is proved guilty, looks to us to deliver him from the peril in which he is in. We are the shield between him and death, unless to your satisfaction he is proved to be guilty." If you convict him, you convict him on circumstantial evidence. I do not know that there is any certainty in the world. The jury returned after just 22 minutes of deliberations. Their decision was unanimous. Jurors found George Smith guilty of Bessie Mundy's murder. sentencing remarks Mr Justice Scrutton told George Smith. The jury, after a careful and patient hearing, have found you guilty of the murder of Bessie Mundy. In doing so, they must have taken an unfavourable view of your relations with Alice Burnham and Margaret Lofty and have found you guilty of a cold-blooded and heartless murder. In that verdict, I entirely concur. Judges sometimes use this occasion to warn the public against a repetition of such crimes. They sometimes use the occasion to exhort the prisoner to repentance. 
I propose to do neither of these courses. I do not believe there is another man in England who needs to be warned against the commission of such a crime, and I think an exhortation of repentance would be wasted on you. Before the judge could continue, Smith interrupted and told him, You may as well hang me at once the way you are going on. Sentence me and be done with it. You may go on forever, but you will not make me into a murderer. George Smith was sentenced to be hanged by the neck until he was dead. Afterwards, he was to be buried within the limits of Maidstone Prison, where he would be confined until his execution. So where are we now? After a failed appeal, George Smith walked with faltering steps to the scaffold just before 8am on August 13th, 1915. He said nothing as his head was covered and the noose was placed around his neck. Shortly after, the platform dropped and Smith died almost instantly. Over 100 years later, his crimes remain one of the most notorious cases in UK history. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on this episode, Please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. If you're a Shark Tank fan or business junkie, check out the podcast, Another Bite. Each week, Another Bite breaks down the biggest success stories and most disastrous failures to come out of Shark Tank. The hosts break down each company's pitch, analyze the deals that were or weren't made, and answer the million-dollar question, are they still a company? 
Whether you're an entrepreneur looking for tips or a Shark Tank fan that just wants to relive the drama, Another Bite's your deep dive into the world of Shark Tank. Just search for Another Bite in your favorite podcast app, like the one you're listening to right now. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 